Please make sure you have your Bibles handy as we dive into God's Word together today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 as we continue Jesus' greatest sermon of all time, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Well, back in 1910, there was a Times editorial that asked the question, what is wrong with the world today? And the British author G.K. Chesterton answered that editorial with this simple response. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What a marvelous response. What's wrong with the world, he said? I am. I am. When it comes down to it, there was one main reason why Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come down here to earth 2,000 years ago. He did it because we had screwed everything up. It's true, isn't it? We messed up everything because we chose to sin instead of obey God. Sin entered this world through Adam and Eve, and sometimes we point the finger at them, but you and I would have done the exact same thing because we've sinned as well. We messed everything up. Our marriages became broken because of sin. Our families were broken because of sin. Our uh, religion was even broken because of sin. Our governments were broken because of sin. Everything was broken because we chose to turn from God. Everything, literally everything, fell apart when our relationship with God was broken. So it shouldn't surprise us to learn that when Jesus came onto the scene, our religion was broken as well. That shouldn't surprise us because everything else was broken. And so Jesus came onto the scene. Our religion was broken. We thought we knew what God's requirements were, but nope, we didn't. We thought we knew what God expected of us and how to bring pleasure to God and, and be in his good graces, but we were wrong once again. We were so messed up, we didn't even know how to worship God right. We didn't even know how to obey Him right. Last Sunday, we explored Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 together, and we saw that Jesus tackled two colossal misunderstandings. You remember what those were? The first misunderstanding that He tackled was this misunderstanding that He came to abolish the Old Testament. Jesus cleared that up very quickly in verses 17 through 20. No, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. Quite the opposite. I came to lift it up and to fulfill it. And then Jesus tackled this second misunderstanding. Jesus tackled the misunderstanding that a true follower of God looks like a Pharisee. In Jesus' day, people looked to the Pharisees and teachers of the law and assumed that those guys had it going on when it came to following and worshiping and serving God faithfully. But Jesus shot down that misunderstanding. Phariseeism is not true religion. Jesus shot down this notion that Phariseeism can get us into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is Phariseeism? Well, Phariseeism is shallow, flashy, hypocritical, self-serving religion. It's, it's outward it's only skin deep. It's a show. It's, it's trying to please people and to impress people. It's not intended to bring honor and glory to God. We saw last week that sadly many who call themselves Christians are actually Pharisees. Their religion is a very shallow, hypocritical, 
self-serving religion. And meanwhile, their hearts remain corrupt because they truly haven't repented. They truly haven't turned themselves over completely to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And because this is such an important topic, Phariseeism versus true Christianity, Jesus will spend the rest of Matthew chapter 5 giving us six examples of how Phariseeism is quite a bit different from true Christianity. And so this morning we'll look at the first two of these examples in verses 21 through 30. I'm calling today's message, Raising the Bar, Anger and Lust. Make sure you have your Bibles with you. We're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Here we go. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Araka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. May God bless us as we read and study and, most importantly, apply his word to our lives today. The ancient Jewish rabbis went through the Old Testament law, those first five books, especially Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they looked at those books and they found out that there were 613 laws that God had given ancient Israel, 613 laws that they were supposed to follow in order to remain in right standing with God. But in the centuries leading up to, to Jesus coming to earth, In those centuries leading up to that time Jesus was born in Bethlehem, those Jewish rabbis began adding more and more and more laws on top of those 613. Uh, They added traditions. They added these very, uh, very specific, very nitpicky Jewish laws, hundreds of them, because they believed, obviously, if we obey all 613 laws of Moses and then add to those 613 hundreds more, boy, we'll be all set with God. Man, he'll think we're super righteous. And so they had added all these extra laws, very nitpicky, very specific, legalistic, obsessive, compulsive, you might say, laws they had added to those that were in the Old Testament. They thought they could please God by obeying these extra laws, and they were wrong. Matthew five twenty-one through 47, as Jesus finishes chapter 5, this first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives these six examples of how God's standards are so much higher and so much deeper than the Jewish leaders' standards. You see, the Jewish leaders' standards appear high because they're so detailed. But their standards are actually very low because as detailed and specific as those extra laws were, the fact remained that they were very shallow. They were specific, but they were shallow. 
And they were very in, excuse me, very external in the way that they were carried out. There was nothing that involved the transformation on the inside. And so as we compare them to Jesus's laws, Jesus's laws, by contrast, his standards are much higher. His laws are much higher and they go much deeper because they don't just deal with what we're doing on the outside. They deal with the heart of the matter. They deal with where those motives, where those actions, where those words that pour from our lips, where they originate right in the heart. Here in verses 21 through 26, Jesus' first example of these six deals with the sixth commandment. Of course, the sixth commandment is, Thou shalt not murder. Now, this was a great law to draw his listeners' attention to because most people back then and most people today will find themselves saying something like this. Well, I look at the Ten Commandments, and you know what? Those first two commandments uh, don't have any other gods before me and don't have any idols, nothing you put ahead of God. Honestly, there have been times in my life where God wasn't my number one priority. I've, I've broken those two laws. And honestly, at times I've uh, broken the, the ninth commandment. I've, I've bared false witness against my neighbor. I've lied sometimes in my life. And to be honest with you, I've broken the eighth commandment at times. I have stolen a few small things at different times in my life. But thankfully, I've never murdered anyone. Thankfully, I've never broken the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment, nailed it. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. To which Jesus responds, no, you haven't. No, you haven't nailed it. Think again. Jesus, here in these verses, initially addresses physical murder. And let's spend a few minutes and talk about physical murder before we move on to a deeper level of murder, murder in the heart. But let's talk about physical murder. Last year here in the United States, we had our highest murder rate in 20 years. This blows me away. In 2020, there were 19,000 murders in the United States. It's more than six times the number of people who were killed on 9-11. Isn't that crazy? Six times the number of people killed on 9-11 murdered in the U.S. last year. But this number, 19,000, isn't complete, is it? Because this number doesn't include suicide. The Word of God makes it clear that suicide is self-murder. God opposes murder whether you're taking someone else's life or taking your own life. How about suicide in this nation last year? Well, we don't have stats from 2020, so let's look at 2018. There were 47,500 suicides in the United States in 2018. And all indications are that that number was much, much higher this past year during COVID. But if you look at that number, 47,500, that's almost 16 times the number of people who were killed on 9-11. You see, this murder rate is growing when we factor in suicide. But even that number isn't complete, is it? Because we know that abortion, according to God's word, is also murder. God knits a child together in its mother's womb, so abortion is murder. Now, we are thankful 
that the abortion rate dropped in our nation in 2020. In fact, many abortion clinics closed down during COVID. We're thankful for that. But my best estimate, based on what I've read, is that we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 650,000 abortions in our nation in 2020. That equates to more than 216 times the number of people killed on 9-11. So let's look at the murder rate that's published, plus suicide, plus abortion in this past year, and you come up with this whopping number, 716,500 murders in the United States in just one year. That's more than 239 times the number of people killed on 9-11, and that equates to almost 2,000 people murdered in the United States every single day. Isn't that crazy? Does anyone want to make the case that we don't have a problem with obeying the sixth commandment in our nation today? Does anyone dare to make the case that we don't cheapen and devalue life in the United States today? I hope no one would try to make that case after listening to those statistics. Notice what Jesus says here in verses 21 through 26. He restores sanity to our insane devaluing of human life. In verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's what everyone had been taught. But starting in the first half of verse 22, Jesus does what he does so well. He doesn't just focus on outward sin, sin on the outside. Jesus looks much deeper and he identifies the source, the root of that sin. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who's just angry with his brother is subject to judgment. The Greek word that Jesus uses here refers to a long-lasting, bitter, vengeful anger that many people, including many Christians, refuse to get rid of. Jesus says in no uncertain terms, if you've got an ex-husband, or if you've got a former boss, or you've got a longtime friend, or a next-door neighbor, or anyone else in your life that you refuse to stop being angry at, you refuse to stop resenting, you refuse to forgive, then you are a murderer. You are a murderer. Wow. That kind of stings a bit, doesn't it? Let's put up this next slide. Jesus reveals that the sixth commandment was never just about physical murder. It was also about heart murder. It's not something we talk about very often, but Jesus talks about it. God looks at heart murder as being murder. Let's be honest with each other. We love to push the envelope, don't we? Uh, We love to ask uh, questions like, how far can I go without actually sinning? How far is too far? But Jesus gives us a wake-up call here, doesn't he? He gives us a wake-up call in Matthew 5. The fact is, the sixth commandment doesn't give me permission to hate my next-door neighbor as long as I don't murder him. The sixth commandment does not give ladies permission to hate their ex-husband. It doesn't give them permission to dream up a hundred different ways that they could murder him if they could get away with it as long as they don't actually do it. 
The sixth commandment does not give us permission. It doesn't give us a green light to make our enemies' lives a living hell as long as we don't actually murder them. Oh, we love to push the envelope. We love to get as close as we can to sin without actually sinning. And Jesus makes it clear that's not going to work. It's not going to be acceptable to God and it's not going to be acceptable to me if you're one of my followers. So here's what Jesus basically says. All murders begin in the heart. All murder begins in the heart, not in the hands. Therefore, in God's eyes, anger that festers in the heart is murder. It's murder. Jesus raises the moral bar higher than we would have ever imagined. In fact, he raises it so high that we have all fallen short, haven't we? We've all fallen short. By Jesus' definition of murder, I'm guilty. And you're guilty too. I'm a murderer. You are a murderer. At some point in our lives, every one of us has harbored anger and bitterness and unforgiveness about someone else, against someone else. And it won't land you in jail here on earth, but it will lead you to God's judgment if you don't allow Jesus Christ to deal with it. We need to admit it and humbly ask Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Friends, obeying the sixth commandment requires that we deal with the root of murder, the anger and bitterness right here in our hearts. Now, I need to ask you a serious question. Are you murdering anyone today? I'm serious. <laughs> it's an important question. It's a serious question. Are you murdering anyone today? Is there anyone in your life, maybe someone in your past, that you've been harboring bitterness against? Someone you've been resenting? And someone that you've been refusing to forgive? Maybe it's someone that has been harboring bitterness and anger and resentment and unforgiveness toward you. And you refused to reach out and extend an olive branch, even though you're convinced that person is at fault more than you are. Is there anyone that you are murdering in your heart? Notice what Jesus says in the second half of verse 22. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Uh, Raka is a, a word that's impossible to completely translate into English, but our, our best guess is it, it, it basically meant empty-headed or uh, uh, an ignorant moron. It, it was basically calling someone a, a brainless idiot. But that doesn't do the word justice because just pronouncing the name out loud, especially when it was said in anger, was just a jarring word. Just imagine someone, even if you didn't know what this word raka meant, just coming up to you and yelling in your face, raka! You know, it's just a rough, hideous sounding word. And so that was a word that was a major insult in Jesus's day in the nation of Israel. And so Jesus points out, you call someone raka, hey, you're answerable to the Sanhedrin. Someone may haul you into court for calling him that name. But then he says, if you say, you fool, don't think you're off the, the hook for saying you fool instead of raka. If you call someone you fool, you're equally in danger of God's judgment. Jesus makes the case in verse 22 that even calling someone a fool could land you in hell. Uh, Psalm 41, excuse me, Psalm 14, verse 1 says this, 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so the Jews knew this verse very well. And so if you called someone a fool in Jesus's day, especially right there in Israel, you were not only saying that person was dumb and stupid, you were saying that person was godless. It's one of the greatest insults you could ever level on a Jewish man or woman. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying in verse 22 that harboring bitter anger towards someone is spiritual murder and punishable in eternity by God. And similarly, insulting someone's intelligence or slandering their moral character also leaves a person guilty in God's sight. In order to truly obey the sixth commandment, do not murder, we must rid our hearts and our minds of bitter anger and resentment. That's heart murder. And we also, according to Jesus, must stop spewing insults and slander because that is mouth murder. So you see how Jesus is raising the bar? You see how he's taking these Old Testament commands and shining the spotlight on them to to make them what God originally intended them to be? All-encompassing, not just addressing the external, the physical, the shallow, but addressing the heart that drives it all. Jesus makes it clear it's not just about avoiding physical murder. You've got to avoid heart murder and you've got to avoid mouth murder. Now, in verses 23 through 26, Jesus teaches us how to heal and repair relationships that we have damaged by our hearts and by our words. In Old Testament times, when a man went to the temple and offered an animal sacrifice to atone for his sins, Those Old Testament Jews understood that before you made that sacrifice that was supposed to cover the sin that you had committed against one of your fellow men, before the priest would accept that sacrifice, any Old Testament Jew knew that you had to first try to reconcile with that brother that you'd offended or insulted or somehow wronged. That priest would ask you, hey, have you made things things right with John, who you're offering the sacrifice to seek forgiveness for? And if you hadn't made some sort of effort to reconcile with John, the priest would say, hey, I'm not offering the sacrifice yet. First, you've got to take care of getting things right with John. And if you didn't and you drug your feet a bit, the priest would take that sacrifice and he would remove it from the temple grounds because it was unholy. It was tainted. He would not offer a sacrifice on behalf of your sin if you had not made an honest effort to reconcile and bring healing with the person you had wronged. The Old Testament Jews understood this. In the same way, you and I have no business taking communion or or putting our offering in the offering box until we first seek reconciliation with a fellow Christian who we've insulted or has insulted us. There's no point in asking God for forgiveness unless we're making an effort to offer forgiveness to a fellow Christian who is screwed up and needs our forgiveness. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus offers a great example of righting wrongs. If you have an outstanding debt of any kind, you need to suck up your pride and do everything in your power to make it right. Pay your debt off quickly, completely. And if you fall behind in your payments, you need to approach your creditor with humility and honesty and respect. Jesus says if you don't, that creditor could cause a whole lot of trouble for you. Don't ignore Jesus' counsel. He says, settle matters quickly with those who've wronged you and with those who you have wronged, including your creditors. 
Well, there's so much more that could be said about this, but we need to move on to the second example of Jesus that he gives us starting in verse 27. So read along with me, verses 27 through 30 here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In his first example, Jesus emphasizes the sanctity of human life. And here in the second example, Jesus emphasizes the sanctity of the sexual relationship within a marriage. Jesus' followers, you know, when it came down to it, he gave them this first example about murder. Murder begins in the heart. He says, you know what? To deal with murder first, you have to deal with your heart because heart murder always takes place before actual physical murder. And in a similar way, Jesus says, if you want to deal with adultery that's physical adultery, you have to first deal with adultery in the heart. Verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I need to be honest with you. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that I love. My favorite verse is Romans 8:28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. I love Jeremiah 29:11. I love John 3:16, and many others. But this verse right here is one of my least favorite verses in the entire Bible. Honestly, I don't like this verse very much because it is so, so convicting. And I think most Christian men who are honest would agree that they don't like this verse very much either. I thank God that I saved myself physically for my wife and our wedding night. But when I'm honest, I have to admit that even though I didn't engage in physical adultery, even though I didn't engage in physical premarital sex, I've sexually sinned in my heart and my mind many, many, many times. And Jesus makes it clear to me right here that I stand guilty as an adulterer before our holy God. By Jesus' definition, I am an adulterer. And by Jesus' definition, you are also an adulterer. Notice what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 23, 7. He says, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. Because I have thought those lustful thoughts, according to God, according to Jesus Christ, I am a sexual sinner. I am an adulterer. A man whose mind is filled with lustful thoughts is an adulterer. Now, just so we're clear, this word in verse 28 that Jesus uses, this word translated as looks, does not refer to a passing glance. It doesn't refer to an accidental viewing. In this sinful world we live in, we're bombarded every day with images of half-dressed women. And many of those we cannot avoid. They flash before our eyes and there's nothing that we can do about it. 
Jesus is not talking about these accidental glances or accidental looks. When he uses this word looks in reference to lust, he is talking about intentional looks. The gawking, the staring, the ogling, the craving, and the acting out in our minds what we swear we would never do in the physical. So what is the root of adultery? The root of adultery is lust in the heart. So that's where Jesus places his focus. He addresses heart adultery. No one's ever had an affair physically without first lusting for the affair. No man or woman is ever engaged in premarital sex without first having premarital sex in their minds and in their hearts. Lust is in the heart. Lust takes place inside of us. And adultery takes place inside of us before it ever takes place on the outside. I like how John MacArthur says it. This is pretty convicting, but we need to hear it. It is not lustful looking that causes the sin in the heart, but the sin in the heart that causes the lustful looking. The lustful looking is but the expression of a heart that is already immoral and adulterous. Ouch. That hurts, but we need to hear it because Jesus needs us to hear the truth. We may be able to hide our lust from everyone else in the room, but we can't hide it from God. I have committed heart adultery, and I wish that I could go back in time and and change what I allowed my mind and my eyes and my heart to be exposed to. I wish I could go back to when I was a teenager and looking through those magazines and lusting after those images of women in those magazines. I wish that I could go back and stop myself from exposing my mind and my heart to these images in my adult years. I wish I could go back and change it, but I can't. But what I can do, what you can do, what we can do, is change what we expose ourselves to from this point forward. In verses 29 through 30, Jesus tells us how to keep from repeating the lust-feeding mistakes of the past. He says simply, here's what you need to do. Gouge out your eyes and hack off your right hand. That's it. Pretty simple, right? Just gouge out your eye and hack off your right hand. It's as simple as that. So we need to kind of ask a follow-up question, don't we? Is Jesus serious? Does he mean this literally? And the answer is no. He doesn't mean it literally. So what does Jesus mean? What's he saying? He's saying this. We must deal with lust at its source. And we must cut it off. We have to deal with it at its source and cut it off. Over the years, Christians, especially Christian teenagers who were dating, love to ask the question, how far can we go without actually having sex? How far is too far? And I need to be honest with you. If you're asking this question, how far can I go without actually having sex? That is a question asked by those who are on the road to hell. It's true. 
That's a question asked by those on the road to hell because basically we're asking, how far can I get from Jesus Christ without actually sinning? That's not the question we ask on the road to heaven if we're a part of the kingdom of heaven. The question we should be asking is this one. Not how far can I go without actually having sex, but how can I stay as far away from sin as possible? Or to put it another way, how close can I get to Jesus Christ? Because the closer I get to Jesus Christ, the further I will be away from sin. Amen? How close can I get to Christ? How far can I stay away from sin? And when we ask that question, Jesus answers the question by saying, you cut it off at the source. That's how you can stay far away from sin. You cut it off at the source. So men, if certain websites are luring you into lust, you need to cut them off. Put a strong internet filter on your personal computer and on your smartphone. They're not, e- they're not difficult to find. There's some great internet filters and some great smartphone filters. Put it on your phone so you can't stumble into lust down the road when you're in a weak moment. If certain TV programs or movies or music are leading you into lust, guess what Jesus wants you to do? He wants you to cut it off. You'll survive if you stop watching your favorite TV show. Uh, You'll survive if you stop watching R-rated movies or other, other sexually promiscuous scenes in movies. It won't kill you. You'll be just fine, I promise. He wants you to cut off those sources of lust. And ladies, uh, you're not above the fray on this one. You need to do some things as well. There's no reason for you to ever, ever be reading or watching Fifty Shades of Grey. There's no place for that in a Christian's life. Why on earth are you exposing your mind and heart to smut? You need to cut it off. Ladies, let me be real with you here. If you've got a bad habit of flirting or showing off too much skin or, you know, flaunting your sex appeal, you need to cut it off. You need to knock it off because it's not just about keeping yourself out of sexual temptation. God has called you to help not lead others into temptation as well. Oh, Jesus says, those sources of lust, you've got to cut them off at the root. Cut them off at the source. Jesus calls us to deal radically with the root of adultery, lust in our hearts, by cutting it off at the source. Well, in these first two examples, Jesus reveals the sad reality that we have failed to live up to God's standards. We have screwed up more than we have realized. But the truth is, I love this. God's grace is greater than our disgrace. Amen? God's grace is greater than our disgrace. God is so good. God is so faithful. We have done some disgraceful things on the outside and more so on the inside. But Jesus Christ gives us the opportunity to have his grace shower upon us. We are heart murderers. We are mouth murderers. We are heart adulterers in God's eyes, but he has washed me clean and he can wash you clean as well. If you'll let him. He so much wants to help us follow him well as he deals with the root of our sin and helps us to live right from the inside out. What is wrong with the world today? We go to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I am. Please, Come into my heart. Wash me clean. 
And if I've already asked you to do that long ago, I ask you to come into my heart anew today. Wash me clean and make me right with God from the inside out. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the strong and mighty and grace-filled name of Jesus. And we ask that you would wash us clean. Lord Jesus, it would be so much easier if we just followed Phariseeism. Just tell me what hoops I need to jump through. Just tell me what I need to do on the outside. I'll just ignore the inside. Just tell me what I need to do to look good. And I'll do it. But Lord Jesus, you love us too much to allow us to keep our hearts corrupt. Oh Lord, please have mercy. Wash us clean from the inside out. Restore righteousness to us from the inside out. Restore right relationships with you from the inside out. Help us to rise to the challenge and carry out that higher level of righteousness that is deserving of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this was a heavy one, but it was a good one, wasn't it? One that the Lord wanted us to hear. He wants to deal with our hearts. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. If you're watching this broadcast today and you've never made a decision to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life, I invite you, I I beg of you to make that decision because you cannot make it to heaven on your own good works or your own flimsy religion. You can only make it to heaven by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And if you're ready to receive him as your savior and as the Lord of your life today, I want you to remember the ABCs. Simply go to him, A, admitting that you are a sinner and you need his grace and forgiveness. B, believing that he died on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven and have the price paid for your sin. And C, choosing to follow him for the rest of your life until he calls you home. Oh, make that decision today. We've got the names and phone numbers of our prayer counselors who are on call right now to receive a call or text from you. Reach out to one of them right now if you've made that decision for Christ. Or if you just need prayer, reach out to one of them right now. They would love to pray with you once again by text or by phone. You decide. They're ready for your call. They're ready for your text. Reach out to them today if we can pray for you or help share Christ with you in any way. And for those of you who have already made that decision to accept Christ, we're going to take communion together right now. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he just wanted to see what the nails in his wrists and feet would feel like. He did it because your sin is so heinous in God's eyes that it required the death penalty. And Jesus loved you too much to make you pay the death penalty in hell for eternity. And so he went to hell for you. His body was broken for the forgiveness of your sin. If you've reached out and taken hold of that body of Jesus broken for you, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus spilled his blood so that you wouldn't have to spill yours. If you've reached out and taken hold of the blood of Christ, Let's take the juice together. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, wash us clean. In Jesus' name, amen. 
as we sing this final song in the service. Let's continue to press in on the Lord Jesus Christ, asking him to continue to work in our hearts so that we can raise to that standard that he's set. He's raising the bar and we can only meet that expectation by his grace working in us and through us. Let's continue to go to him in prayer as we lift up this final song. God bless you as you love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ this week.